Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. We're in the seventh chapter. In a moment, I'll read verses 18 through 23. This is the story of an interaction between Jesus and some of, his, and some of the disciples of John the Baptist, I should say. It may surprise some here to learn that John the Baptist, like Jesus, had his followers. Though I have never seen an artist's depiction of John the Baptist that included disciples. Many of the great works of art featuring Jesus, he's surrounded by his disciples, but not so John the Baptist. I think that is because we tend to think of John as a particularly solitary individual, living alone in the wilderness, maybe a little bit wild-eyed from being alone so long, railing against sin and sinners. And although John did indeed live in the wilderness, he was not a solitary figure. There are numerous passages in the New Testament that reference his disciples. Well, what do we know about John the Baptist? Well, if you remember the first chapter here in Luke, we have some detail about his life, even before he was born, who his parents were, a man by the name of Zacharias, a woman by the name of Elizabeth, who were advanced in years, the scripture said, apparently past the time of normal childbearing. And the angel Gabriel came to his father as he was ministering. He was a priest of the Lord and told him that his wife was going to get pregnant and have a son, even told him what his name would be. His name would be called John. We know that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to Elizabeth, John's mother, because they were cousins, told her of what the angel had told her, that the Messiah would be born through her. And the scripture says that John the Baptist slept in his mother's womb to hear it. And so we believe that uh, John the Baptist and Jesus likely grew up together. Now they lived only about 50 miles apart, and though that's a long ways in those days, certainly there were times where they got together as family and so they knew one another. John, as an adult, was a prophet. We like to say he was the last of the Old Testament prophets and the greatest of those. He's described as the forerunner of Jesus. A forerunner is one who went ahead of a sovereign ruler to tell his constituency to make preparations, to get the house in order to repair the roads so that when he came to visit, he would find everything in in good order. He was the recipient of the greatest compliment anyone's ever received. We'll study that next week here in Luke 7. When Jesus said of John the Baptist, he's the greatest man ever born of woman. John was, of course, bold, courageous. He spoke truth to authority, and that got him in trouble. He was a martyr. He lost his life for the sake of the gospel. But as we think about all those wonderful traits of John the Baptist, it's important to remember that he was not God. He was a man. As we're about to read, he had times of weakness, disappointment, and doubt. In fact, one of the reasons that I have such great faith that the Bible is true is that it does not read like a propaganda piece. There is a genre of literature called hagiography. Historians are always on the lookout for it. It's a document or a book that claims to to give the life story of a powerful individual, but it only tells the good. There's never any bad. And you can rest assured, if you read a biography of any length at all, and it's all good and not bad, it's not accurate. Because none of us are all good. Well, John 
was a saint in the same way that every born-again believer is a saint, but his faith, like ours, was far from perfect. So let's read about that episode. Luke 7, 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things, that is, all the things Jesus had been doing, healing the sick, raising the dead. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. He gave them sight, many to who were blind, and he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now a little background here. Jesus had finished his great sermon on the mount, and he undertook an itinerant preaching and healing ministry. He was traveling from village to village there around the Sea of Galilee. And with him were the 12 disciples. And every time he would heal someone in a village, other people would begin to follow. And as I said last week, it was like a snowball. The longer he went, the more people were with him. Some of the things that he had done, even in chapter 7, remember he healed the centurion's servant. Last week we saw how he raised a dead man, the son of a widow woman, and restored their relationship. So it didn't take long for news like the raising of the dead to get around. And apparently it got all the way back to John the Baptist, who we believe was in prison at the time, but was allowed visitors, obviously. And he called his disciples and said, look, go find Jesus and ask him, are you the expected one or should we look for another? See, John in jail was there because he had rebuked the puppet governor, Herod. John rebuked him publicly because he lived a life of sexual immorality. He had stolen the wife of his brother, married her, despite the fact that she was his niece. It was a sordid affair. And let me say a word at this point about the relationship of preachers and politicians. If preachers are not careful, they will become enamored with the power that comes with being friends with powerful people. And before long, they will lose their ability to speak prophetically. John kept his distance from the powerful so that he could declare even to the king, thus says the Lord. Of course, that's ultimately what cost him his head. But while in jail, he was apparently allowed visitors and, and, and he gave his disciples a task. He said, go find Jesus and two, ask him a question. Are you the one or should we look for another? Now, this is a difficult passage. We know that John the Baptist spent his entire ministry preparing other people for the expected one, the Messiah. And now he seems to be doubting himself. Now we know that John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, when Jesus came out to the wilderness to be baptized, John said to him, I have need to be baptized by you. He recognized who Jesus was. He said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. He said he's the Lamb of God. So what's happening here? Had John lost his faith? No. But we see something about John here, and that is his faith was not perfect. Can I let you know a little secret about your pastor? His faith is not perfect. And I suspect none of us here would say we have perfect faith. Sometimes we get disappointed with the way things turn out because it's not what we expected. 
That's the title of the sermon today, not what we expected. Remember I said that John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets had revelation from God, but it was not a perfect revelation in the sense that they knew everything exactly that would happen. We talked about in time past the Messianic uh, prophecies. Those prophets viewed the coming of the Messiah as one event, as one mountain. And as they got closer to the mountain, it became clear that it was not one mountain, but two. The first coming of Jesus and his second coming with a great valley in between, which we know today is the church age. But they didn't understand that. Apparently John didn't understand that. And so John went out preaching the Messiah was coming and it was Jesus and he was going to bring judgment when he came. But instead of judging people, he finds out Jesus is hanging out with Galilean fishermen. He's healing Gentile servants and he's being sympathetic to grieving widows. Not what he expected. Now I think there's some lessons we can learn here from John's disappointment. There, there are certain periods or phases in the life of every believer that we are prone to disappointment and doubt. The first is when you're going through prolonged suffering. John was in prison, had been there for a while, and I suspect he knew how this was going to end. And while he was there in prison, remember he had enjoyed his freedom out there in the wilderness living off the land. He became disappointed and had some doubts. There are people that you know, some in this room likely, who have prolonged illnesses, maybe chronic pain. Some of you have been dealing with cancer for years. It seems like every time you think you've got it whipped, it comes back. That's opportunity for doubt and disappointment. Another opportunity is, is when your reputation is on the line and it seems like God doesn't have your back. See, John had for years been saying, he's coming, he's coming, and he's going to bring judgment. Here's the guy, and then he doesn't bring judgment. He feels like that's not what he, he was told. He's disappointed with deity. And the third opportunity for disappointment is when life doesn't turn out the way you imagined it would. I'm thinking specifically here of, of the marriage relationship. We're coming up on the wedding season soon. And I do counseling with young people whose weddings I'm going to perform later on in the spring. And and here they are in their 20s, young, beautiful, healthy. Got their first good job usually. And I'll say, here's your vows we're going to say in June. Good times or bad, better or worse, richer or poor, in sickness and in health. And I said, come June, you're going to stand in front of God and your pastor and hundreds of your friends. And you're going to make those promises and you're going to mean it. But you're not going to believe it. Because when you're in your 20s and you got your first job and you're young and beautiful and healthy, you think it's going to be better rather than worse. And health rather than sickness. And prosperity rather than poverty. And then I'll have the opportunity to point to some faithful couples in our church who thought the same thing when they got married. Who one of them got very sick and has been sick for years. Who through no fault of their own go through financial difficulties. And I'll say, you're going to say you mean it, but you won't know you mean it until it happens. Well, this is what happened to John. All three of these circumstances. He had prolonged suffering in prison. His reputation, he thought, was being damaged because Jesus wasn't behaving the way he said he would. And life simply did not turn out as he imagined. John had all these circumstances. No wonder he asked the question, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Well, 
That leads to our second point. Jesus reminds him of the evidence that he is the Messiah. Look at verse 21. After these disciples asked Jesus that question, at that very time, I take that in their presence while they were waiting, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind and he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now that seems like a strange, long answer to a very simple yes or no question. But Jesus was doing something very wonderful there. He was being gentle and kind to John the Baptist. In other words, Jesus just kept doing what he had been doing. He was preaching, he was healing, healed the sick, cast out demons, gave sight to the blind, and preached the gospel to the poor. Now what does that remind you of? Well, that is a very clear reference to an Old Testament messianic prophecy. Isaiah 61.1, listen to it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Now John knew the Old Testament. His father was a priest after all. He studied the scripture, no doubt. He knew Isaiah 61.1. Jesus was just gently reminding him of what it said. He was fulfilling perfectly what God had said the Messiah would be doing. I would say this at this point. If anyone then or now doubts the veracity of Jesus' claims of Messiahship, it is never for lack of evidence. Never for lack of evidence. The Lord has given us a mountain of evidence that Jesus is the promised one. First of all, there's the testimony of Scripture. Dozens, hundreds passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus that were fulfilled perfectly in the person and work of Christ, including the name of the little village where he was born, Bethlehem. John knew this. There's the testimony of supernatural power, raising the dead, casting out demons, his authority over the spiritual realm and the physical realm. But then there was the testimony of God the Father. When Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven, God the Father declared audibly, Behold my beloved Son, who am well pleased. That's a pretty good endorsement. And then there's the testimony of his own preaching ministry. How when Jesus would teach, the people would walk away amazed because he taught as one having authority, unlike the others. And then probably the greatest testimony of the veracity of Jesus' Messiahship is the empty tomb that he arose from the grave and was, by the way, witnessed to by hundreds of people during that 40-day period. There's a mountain of evidence. And John knew all of this. He was present when God spoke from heaven and validated Jesus' ministry. And yet he still had periods of doubt. The irony of chapter 7 is that chapter 7 began with the faith of a Gentile. Remember the Roman centurion who said, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house to heal my servant. Just say the word. And Jesus was amazed with his faith and says, I've not found such faith, not even Israel. And by the way, that included John the Baptist. The centurion had a greater faith than John the Baptist. Well, that leads us thirdly. How is Jesus going to respond to that? Now you think about it. Put yourself in his position. You fulfilled everything to the letter that God had predicted in the Old Testament. You healed people, you raised the dead, 
and your closest associate, a childhood friend and cousin who's known you all your life, sends a message through other people, are you the Messiah or should we wait on someone else? I would not have liked that. I don't know about you. I, I would have been tempted to say, I'll tell you what, you tell John. <laughs> he didn't. Jesus was compassionate. He was kind. Look what he says, verse 23. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's about as gentle a rebuke as anyone could ever receive. It is a rebuke, but it's a gentle rebuke. He said, John, don't be offended by me. I know I'm not behaving the way you thought I would, but look at the Old Testament. I'm doing exactly what the Spirit said I would. I'm preaching the gospel to the poor. I'm setting the captives free. I'm healing the brokenhearted. It's me. Don't fret. Now, John the Baptist was a man, I believe, who had a keen sense of right and wrong. Justice and injustice. There is nothing wrong with that. We need more people, more pastors and preachers who think and behave that way. But there's a warning here. We should never be eager for God to judge other people. Sometimes in our religious zeal, we almost take joy in the notion that our enemies religiously one day are going to get what's coming. And we sort of want God to hurry up with the process. Jesus had a couple of disciples in his inner circle, the 12, who were like that. Do you remember their names? They were brothers, James and John. He called them the sons of thunder. They were always in a turmoil. One day, Jesus was traveling with his disciples and they needed a place to stay and the innkeeper wouldn't allow them to stay there. And do you know what James and John asked Jesus? Lord, do you want us at this time to call down fire from heaven and kill this guy? That's what they asked Jesus. Want us to kill him? We'll do it. I suppose they thought Jesus was going to congratulate them on their loyalty. He did not. He rebuked them. He said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Jesus didn't come to destroy. He came to save, right? And so don't, don't ask me, do you want me to call down fire from heaven? And, and, and I don't expect any of you have ever been tempted to call down fire from heaven. Maybe. I don't know your boss. But... <laughs> There have probably been times where we, you wish ill on another person. You wish God would judge them on the spot. I, I've been in that situation. Don't be too hasty because here's the truth. Lost people act like lost people, remember? And, and there's most likely the reason they're behaving that way, especially if they know you're a Christian, is, is that they don't know the Lord. Now there is coming a day when Jesus will return and he will judge. Remember the first time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was on the foal of a donkey. He was humble and, and meek, like a lamb to the slaughter. He uttered not a word. But, but when he comes again, that second mountain, the second coming of Christ, he won't come humbly. Revelation tells us that he'll be riding a, a white war horse and that he'll be accompanied by his legions. And he's coming with an iron scepter and he will rule and reign and he will judge the living and the dead. But when he came the first time, he said he came to seek and to save the lost. He came not into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. To, to, to preach good news that Jesus is going to die for sinners. And then he did die for sinners, which was really his mission all along. 
substitutionary atonement. And then he showed his victory and authority over death itself through his glorious resurrection. Now don't get me wrong. We must preach judgment. If a church or a pastor claims to be preaching the true gospel and they live, leave out sin and judgment and righteousness, they do not preach the true gospel. True gospel is good news. Jesus saved sinners. But the good news is only good news in light of the bad news. The bad news is that every person in the world is a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. Sinner by nature and sinner by choice. And God is a just God and He will ultimately judge sin. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus has done everything that is required for you to be forgiven. For that relationship to be restored through His death, burial, and resurrection. Through placing your trust in Him. You don't have to face judgment. In fact, Paul says encapsulating the gospel in one verse, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We must preach judgment, but never with joy. Charles Spurgeon used to say, we, we should never preach of hell without a tear in our eye. And he's right. Because as Paul said in the New Testament, when he listed a long list of heinous sins, he says, such were some of you. There was a day when we stood under the wrath and judgment of God, but He was merciful and kind, and He brought someone into our life who proclaimed the gospel. And the Holy Spirit quickened our heart, gave us the faith to believe, and He granted repentance, and we were born again. And every person you know, including your worst enemy, is a potential trophy of God's grace. So the advice that I give people who are having problems with others at work or at school or even in their own home is to pray for that person by name regularly. I find it almost impossible to remain bitter at someone I pray for regularly. Very difficult to do. If you lift up someone to the Lord, every time you see them from a distance, just lift their name up to the Lord. Ask God to help them. It's very difficult to be bitter at that person. Now this passage, I think, has some things to teach us. First of all, we must recognize the difference between honest doubt and cynicism. There was a group of people in Jesus' day who had all the same information John the Baptist did. They knew the Old Testament as well as John. They were present when God spoke from heaven. They saw Jesus' miracles up close and personal. They heard His authoritative preaching, and yet they willfully, stubbornly rejected it. That group of people was called the Pharisees, if you remember. And Jesus reserved His harshest criticisms for them. He wasn't gentle in His response to their doubts because their doubts were not genuine. Their doubts were cynicism. But John the Baptist, who he knew was one of his, was going through a prolonged period of suffering and doubt, and Jesus was gentle. And so I think there's something else we can learn. When we go through those periods of doubt and disappointment, what should we do with them? Maybe you grew up in a faith tradition that if you uttered any sort of disappointment or doubt, you were beaten down. No, don't say that. Don't think that. At least not out loud. I would say to you, do what John did. Take your disappointments to Jesus. Go right to Him. By the way, He already knows what you're thinking. You're not going to surprise Him. Just tell Him, Lord, I... 
I don't understand. I'm confused. I'm disappointed. I thought I was on the right track here, but I keep having doors slammed in my face. What are you doing in my life? He's gentle. He's kind. He says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. And then I'm going to add thirdly, be patient. I think that if there's any characteristic that is most lacking in today's culture, it is patience. We've got to have everything now. How many times have I stood in front of the microwave going, hurry up! <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait 10 minutes. It's got to be now. And so whatever we're experiencing at the moment, that's all. Oh, it's never going to be any better. Never going to change because I'm hurting right now. No. You remember what Peter said? Brother Ted Eaton is preaching through 1 Peter on Wednesday nights here and I love what Peter said. He was writing to persecuted Christians in the first century. He said, it may be now that you'll be called to suffer for a little while. Now, that's all relative. Some of us may be called to suffer for a lifetime. I've known Christians who were faithful Christians that it seemed to never get any better for them. They, they, they suffered with pain or, or, or a broken heart to the day that they die. But relative to eternity, even a lifetime of suffering is a little while. Most of us know Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good, right? For those who love Him, we're called according to His purposes. And when I say that to people, I'm sure some of them who know the Bible are tempted to say, well, it didn't work out for John the Baptist because we know the rest of his story is that he had his head cut off, placed on a silver platter in front of his enemies. Didn't seem to work out for him. I would submit to you that it worked out just fine for John the Baptist. Because the second John's spirit left his body, it was in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is... The worst thing that can happen to you in your, your life, I suppose, is, is to lose it. But for Christians, when we lose our life, we've really just begun. We've gained it. And so all things do work together for good, even if it means losing our life. Let me leave you with, with one more verse that I have found very helpful as it relates to disappointment and doubt. Romans 10, 11. Mark it in your Bible. Romans 10, 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. He said, well, pastor, I thought you just said John the Baptist was disappointed. Well, this word disappointed here means ultimately disappointed. You may be disappointed in the short term, but in the end, you will not be ultimately disappointed. What I mean by this John's life probably didn't end the way he thought it would or should, but I can assure you, when he woke up in heaven, he was not disappointed. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Think of the most godly people you know or have ever met in your life, particularly those who walked with the Lord for many years. Have you ever had one of those people who walked closely with the Lord for many decades come to the end of their life and say to you, I regret that. I wish I hadn't walked so closely with the Lord. I wish I had sinned a little bit more. I've never had one person 
tell me they regretted walking closely to the Lord. I have had many people say to me near death, I wish I had given more to the Lord. I wish I hadn't wasted those 30 years before I got saved. Many people have told me that. One of my heroes, as you know, in ministry was Dr. Adrian Rogers. He's been with the Lord for many years now. Faithful pastor for over 50 years. As he reached towards the end of his life, he, he used to say something, especially directed towards young people. And I want to say it to our teenagers, especially here today. He said this. He said, I'm coming towards the end of my life, but I want you to know this. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all to Jesus. What, what he meant for that, he did not regret one second he spent serving the Lord. And if he could relive his life a thousand times, he'd give every one of those lives to the Lord. And there are people in this room today, I hope, who would say a hearty amen to that. Are there any? Amen. amen. You can trust the Lord. You'll have periods of doubt and disappointment. Take those to Jesus. He's gentle and kind. He'll hear you. He'll love you. And He'll remind you of His Word that He will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for this Scripture today. And Lord, it's been encouraging to my heart. even as I've studied it this week. Father, none of us probably have perfect faith. We have days of disappointment, maybe even doubt. But Lord, we know we are yours. You have promised that not even death can separate us from your love. So in that period of time of doubt, Lord, I'm thinking of some here today who have been sick a long time. They've had a relationship, Lord, that's been a mess for years. They've been hurting so long. And yet, Lord, remind us that it's just a little while. Even if it's a lifetime compared to eternity, it's a little while of suffering. And Lord, those that trust in you will never ultimately be disappointed. So I pray, Father, that you'd give encouragement to those who need it here today. Father, I pray you would bind up broken hearts I pray, Lord, you'd remind us of your exceeding great and precious promises. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us in a powerful way this week. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.